0: This is VOA News. Reporting via remotes, I'm Richard Green. The United States called out China and Russia on Wednesday for opposing further United Nations action on North Korea, warning that the Security Council cannot stay silent any longer as Pyongyang prepares for a seventh nuclear test. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, referred to two council members who she said argued that restraint by the council would encourage North Korea to stop escalating and instead come to the negotiating table.
1: We cannot wait until the DPRK conducts additional provocative illegal dangerous acts like a nuclear test. We need to speak up now with a strong and unified voice in condemnation of the DPRK's behavior.
0: Washington has assessed North Korea could be ready to do such a test as early as this month.
1: The DPRK sees that this council used to respond with meaningful consequences, but it no longer does. So it interprets council's silence to mean that it won't face future consequences. And it sees our silence as permission to continue on its stated trajectory.
0: However, veto powers China and Russia are opposed to further U.N. sanctions and have long been pushing for the Council to ease such measures on North Korea on humanitarian grounds. The United States is now is not the time. Ukrainian forces reported battlefield gains on Wednesday in a counterattack that could signal a shift in the momentum of the war, while Kyiv shut gas flows on a route through Russian-held territory, raising the threat of an energy crisis in Europe. Following days of advances north and east of the second-largest city, Kharkiv, Ukrainian forces were within just several kilometers of the Russian border on Wednesday morning, one Ukrainian military source said, on condition of anonymity. This is VOA News. The advance appears to be the fastest that Ukraine has mounted since it drove Russian troops away from Kyiv and out of the country's north at the beginning of April. If sustained, it could let Ukrainian forces threaten supply lines for Russia's main attack force and even put real logistics targets inside Russia itself within striking range of Ukrainian ar- artillery. A journalist for Al Jazeera was shot and killed while covering an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank town of Janine early Wednesday. Linda Graskeen reports for VOA.
1: Shireen Abu Akla, a 51-year-old journalist for Al Jazeera, was fatally shot in the West Bank city of Janine early Wednesday. The Palestinian health ministry said she was hit in the head by live Israeli fire. Video from the site showed she was wearing a helmet and a vest with the word press on it. Qatar-based Al Jazeera issued a statement accusing Israel of killing Abu Akla in cold blood. Palestinian activist Mustafa Barghouti told Al Jazeera that Abu Akla was shot soon after arriving in Jenin.
2: They just arrived to Jenin, which was being invaded at the same time by the Israeli army. There was no exchange of fire. So there is no possibility whatsoever that a Palestinian has shot the Shireen Abu Akleh. The Israeli army always uses these excuses to cover up the crimes they are committing against Palestinians, including Palestinian journalists.
1: Israeli Foreign Ministry spokesman Lior Hayat disputed the Palestinian version of events.
3: There are indications that Ms. Abu Akleh was killed by Palestinian terrorist fire. Israel will be conducting a thorough investigation. We call on the Palestinian Authority to cooperate with this investigation in order to get to the truth.
1: Palestinians say they do not trust Israel to conduct a fair investigation. Abu Akhla's death comes amid growing tension between Israel and the Palestinians. Palestinian attackers, including several from Jenin, have killed 19 people in terrorist attacks over the past few months. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem.
0: The United States has now recorded more than 1 million COVID-19 deaths, according to a Reuters telling, crossing a once unthinkable milestone about 2 years after the first cases upended everyday life and quickly transformed it. The 1 million mark represents about one death for every 327 Americans or more than 3 or more than the entire population of San Francisco or Seattle. Recapping our top story, the U.S. called out China and Russia on Wednesday for opposing further U.N. action on North Korea, warning that the Security Council cannot stay silent any longer as Pyongyang prepares for a seventh nuclear test. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for DOA.
2: Today is Thursday, May 12th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinado in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. defense chief restates NATO's readiness to defend member nations against Russian
4: attacks. Uh, NATO has the most advanced capabilities of uh, any alliance in the world in terms of aircraft, ships, types of weaponry that uh, the ground forces use. So this is a fight that he really doesn't want to have.
2: The U.N. says nearly half of Afghanistan's population faces acute hunger.
5: Drought and economic crisis persist, threatening close to 20 million people across the country. And the war in Ukraine continues
2: to put pressure on food and fuel prices. And could a nasal spray be a, quote, game changer, unquote, in preventing and treating COVID-19 infections? We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the United States does not believe that Russian President Vladimir Putin wants to militarily take on the NATO alliance. This, as Moscow struggles to achieve its goals in Ukraine three months into its invasion
4: my view is that russia doesn't want to take on nato alliance he's got a number of troops arrayed in the region right now on the ukrainian border he had some in belarus and still has some there but there are 1.9 million forces in nato Uh, nato has the most advanced capabilities of uh, any alliance in the world in terms of aircraft ships types of weaponry that the, the ground forces use So this is a fight that he really doesn't want to have, and that would very quickly escalate into another type of uh, competition that no one wants to see.
2: That's U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. As fighting continues throughout Ukraine, flashpoints Ukraine's Steve Miller spoke with VOS Jan Bochad on the streets of Odessa.
6: This is a surprisingly, a very calm day. It looks like there's no war here. If you go to a place where there was this heat, yeah, of course, you see the war. But in downtown Odessa, it looks like a normal life. All the shops are open, cafes are open, people are eating outside because today is a warm day. I went to the shores today and people were swimming, fishing, kids playing around. Now it's a strange feeling because we know there's a war going on, there's a lot of people dying. There are attacks here, the last days, last week, there were almost daily attacks to Odessa, but life here seems to be normal. Seems that people here, they just got used to this situation, this strange situation.
7: So what are people telling you when you're interacting with them?
6: I asked this question to a lot of people here, And all of them, they said, well, life has to go on. This is what we're living now. We have to to keep living. We have to keep on the path of life. We can't stop. And one guy said to me, an old man said to me today on the beach, he was saying, don't worry, the Russians love this city too much. They're not going to destroy this. They're just playing. They're not going to destroy this place. They love it so much. So there's this feeling here that nothing's going to happen, you know, at the end. It's a strange feeling. And there's a lot of rumors going on now, especially from the US. Intelligence that Putin might take this war to Transnistria, very close to here to the moldava border with Ukraine. But still, people here they say this is life, we're going to live our lives, and that's it.
7: Speaking of that that comment we are going to live our lives and this is a situation that we're in are there any concerns about possible ways that the war could end up there's great concern that russia is trying to move its forces into the eastern and southern parts of ukraine to establish that land bridge from crimea to the donbass region on a permanent basis and permanently uh, annex those areas as well. Are are people in Odessa fearful of, of how things may play out?
6: I think most of the people here are getting used to the idea that this war is gonna long way more than people thought at the beginning. Everybody seems to be getting used to the idea this is gonna be a long war, this is gonna be a friction war, but the war at the same time is far from here in a way. Although Mikolaev is very close to here. But the sensation that I have talking to people here, not just here and, and Kiev as well in other parts, is that this is just the beginning of a long, long war in Ukraine. But most of it will be fought on the east
2: that's flashpoint ukraine steve miller speaking with vos yan botched on the streets of odessa final congressional approval of a 40 billion dollar ukraine aid bill seems certain within days the Senate top republicans said wednesday they expect strong gop backing for the house passed measure senate minority leader mitch mcconnell told the associated press that he expected quote substantial support on quote for the measure an expected Senate consideration, quote, as soon as possible, unquote. The House had overwhelmingly approved the aid package that beefs up President Joe Biden's initial request. For more on the significance of the package, I spoke with VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson.
8: The bill that is expected to pass the U.S. Senate represents some of the most significant aid that the U.S. has sent to a country Since Afghanistan, since Iraq. And of course, we are not involved in an open conflict in Ukraine, but many members of the Biden administration, President Biden himself, and Democrats and Republicans have all expressly stated that sending this military and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine is in the best interests of. American national security in preserving democracy and in fighting Russia, beating them back against this unprovoked invasion.
2: What is it about Ukraine that, for one, Republicans and Democrats are coming together to make sure Ukraine gets this assistance? Some say it's one of the few things that both parties agree on.
8: Because it absolutely is one of those rare moments on Capitol Hill where Democrats and most Republicans are really in agreement with each other that the U.S. needs to be in this fight. They really see the images that are coming out of Ukraine, the images of bombing, of civilian mass graves, of hospitals being bombed. And they say, look, Ukraine is not a perfect democracy. We know this. But it is a fledgling democracy and it represents a real linchpin in Eastern Europe in terms of countering Russian influence and also in preventing Russia from encountering or incurring into NATO countries. That is something that would be catastrophic because then, of course, it would trigger u.s ground involvement in the region so this is really the front line in europe in terms of fighting for democracy and you are very right that will bring together democrats and republicans
2: what is in this huge bill
8: the really key element of this is that there was a seven billion dollar increase in terms of presidential drawdown authority and that basically means it's like a a bank account that President Biden can draw on. We need to fund this and this and this to help the fight in Ukraine. And U.S. lawmakers looked at that and they said the president didn't even... Asked for enough we're going to give him seven billion more than he asked for there's also several hundred million dollars in continued humanitarian assistance because of course we know there is an influx of refugees coming from ukraine into other eastern european countries and there's a continued uh tranche of money this is really interesting to replenish american weapons stocks there has been some concern on capitol hill that because we're sending so many weapons and munitions over to Ukraine, we're not going to be able to fulfill our responsibilities to other countries, most importantly, Taiwan. And so some of the money in this bill is going to be expressly set aside to help replenish some of those stocks. So a very big bill when you're talking about $40 billion. There's a lot in here.
2: That's VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson speaking with me from Washington, D.C., The latest United Nations food assessment finds a record 19.7 million Afghans, or nearly half of the country's population, are facing record levels of acute hunger. Lisa Schneider reports for VOA from Geneva.
5: The upcoming harvest is expected to bring some relief to Afghanistan's dwindling food stocks. But World Food Program Deputy Regional Director for Asia, Anthea Webb, warns this relief is expected to be short-lived. Speaking from Bangkok, Webb says the wheat harvest season from May to August will be a lifeline for hundreds of thousands of people. However, she notes 18.9 million still will be facing acute hunger between June and November when numbers are expected to rise again. Drought and economic crisis persist, threatening close to 20 million people across the country. And the war in Ukraine continues to put pressure on global food and fuel prices, especially acutely in Afghanistan, where they were already much higher than before. She says a small pocket of more than 20,000 people in Afghanistan's northeastern province of Gore are facing catastrophic levels of hunger and are of particular concern. She says they eat nothing but bread seven days a week and desperately need humanitarian assistance if they are to survive. Webb says the increasingly harsh, repressive measures imposed on women and by the de facto Taliban authorities are having a tragic impact on the nutritional status and well-being of their families. Webb says she fears the Taliban's tough stance against women is likely to alienate international donors who might be reluctant to support such an oppressive regime. She assures donors that the money they contributed for humanitarian aid does not go to the government, but to the Afghan people who require assistance now more than ever. She adds WFP requires $1.4 billion to continue its emergency life-saving operation this year. Lisa Schlein for VOA
2: News, Geneva. For months, only a trickle of aid has entered Ethiopia's war torn northern Tigray region, parts of which the UN says are likely in a state of farming. Tigrayans forced to flee hunger are so desperate that some tell of abandoning their families. Herr Wilkins reports from Sekota, Ethiopia.
3: Sekota is home to thousands who have fled Tigray, displaced by war and hunger. Throughout the town, they gather in their hundreds each morning at aid points run by non-profits. Sometimes there is food to give them, but mostly there is not. Tigray, just 10 kilometres away, has been under a de facto humanitarian blockade for a year, with the Ethiopian government and Tigrayan rebels blaming each other for preventing aid from getting through. It is thought that 700,000 people are living under famine-like conditions in Tigray, according to aid agencies and regional health officials who also say at least 1,900 children have already died of starvation. Kasahan Bayi, a father of six, arrived in Sokoto from Tigray recently, abandoning his family.
2: All,
3: he says he knows his family has nothing to eat, but he can't do anything about it. He'll try to bring them to Sokoto if they survive until he returns. He says he's not cruel for leaving them behind, but the situation was beyond what he was able to deal with. The full extent of the crisis is unknown because the government has banned journalists from visiting Tigray and has also imposed a telecommunications shutdown. However, VOA was recently able to visit Sakota and talk with those displaced. Kasa Tagaru belongs to the Amhara ethnic group. She says her ethnic Tigrayan husband did not come with her and her children because he feared being killed in the Amhara region due to his ethnicity. She says her nine-year-old daughter always asks if her father is alive or dead from starvation or something else. Rights groups have been ringing the alarm bells about ethnic-based violence and killings against Tigrayans, including in the Amhara region. Establishing humanitarian corridors to allow people to escape Tigray would help alleviate the crisis, say advocacy groups. Sarah Deodorf miller is a senior fellow at Refugees International, a Washington-based nonprofit. Absolutely.
8: There need to be more ways
1: for civilians who are trying to flee to get out. I mean, that is a basic principle in international law. That's a very basic kind of you know refugee one oh one issue.
3: Zenash Waku is an aid worker in Dakota. We are accepting displaced people arriving in Dakota, including from Tigray. That's part of being human, Zanesh says. She says she believes people shouldn't suffer because politicians disagree. Meanwhile, desperation continues to drive people to flee to Sokota, like Kenu asked for. Kenu says he has nothing to lose and risked the journey that takes four days and nights without access to water or food. I would rather die trying to get out, Kenu says, instead of dying due to hunger. Most people who spoke to VOA said before leaving Tigray, they witnessed adults and children dying of starvation. Henry Wilkins, for VOA News, Sokota Ethiopia.
2: In other news, Cardinal Joseph Zinn, one of the most senior Catholic clerics in Asia, and three others who helped run a now disbanded Hong Kong fund for protesters, were arrested on charges of, quote, with foreign forces on court and later released on bail. Zen, a 90-year-old former bishop of Hong Kong, was questioned for several hours on Wednesday at the Chai Wai police station close to his church residence before being released on police bail. The silver head Zen wearing a white clerical collar left without making any comment to the media. Local police said in a statement that the National Security Department of the Police Force had arrested two men and two women ranging from 45 to 90 years old for quote collusion with foreign forces on on tuesday and wednesday police said they were suspected of asking for foreign sanctions police said all were released on bail with their passports confiscated under the national security law for more on this story and other breaking news visit our website at voanews.com. remember to connect with us on social media we are on twitter facebook and instagram search for voa africa You are listening to V.O.S. International Edition. I am Chinado in Washington. A promising antiviral delivery system developed at Northwestern University in Illinois could be, quote, a game-changer, unquote, in preventing and treating
7: COVID-19 infections. V.O.S. Ken Farabao has more. For several decades, Kelly Callahan has worked for the global nonprofit Carter Center to provide treatment and medicine to people suffering from neglected tropical diseases in some of the most remote and warmest places on the planet.
9: The end of the road is not where the people live. You have to go far beyond the end of the road to deliver these vaccines or these drugs. Maintaining a cold chain becomes incredibly difficult.
7: Callahan says complicated logistics to keep the medicines cold aren't the only obstacle. Antibody therapies are difficult to develop, expensive, and often must be administered by medical staff. Many patients also don't want to be injected with needles as healthcare professionals know all too well. All challenges that plague healthcare providers around the world trying to administer COVID-19 vaccines.
9: Anything that can be done to reduce the intensity of delivery. Anything that can be done to reduce the challenges in delivery will make delivery much easier.
7: Which is exactly what Northwestern University's Dr. Michael Jewett is trying to do. This can revolutionize the way in which antiviral therapies can be delivered. Dr. Jewett and his staff at Northwestern's Center for Synthetic Biology, in partnership with the University of Washington and Washington University in St. Louis, first used supercomputers to design a new protein-based antibody nasal spray. It was refined in testing on mice and delivered promising results in combating COVID-19. What's special about the version we created is it's actually effective at neutralizing all of the variants of concern in this mouse model. Testing showed Northwestern's nasal spray outperformed current antibody treatments with emergency use authorization status from the US Food and Drug Administration or FDA. Northwestern's nasal spray maintained effectiveness for longer and also reduced the overall level of infection. One of the special features about this antiviral therapy is that we can both treat and prevent it. The next crucial step for the research team's nasal spray, which is cheaper to manufacture, doesn't require cold storage and can be self-administered is determining its effectiveness in humans. We've currently partnered with biomanufacturing company to scale up the synthesis for testing and ultimately moving this towards phase one clinical trials. Jewett says the process his team developed could be valuable in the fight against future pandemics. Clinical trials for the COVID-19 nasal spray could begin by the end of the year. Kane Fairbaugh, VOA News, Evanston, Illinois.
2: Australia's Great Barrier Reef has suffered yet another mass bleaching event Despite cooler temperatures due to a La Nina weather system, more than 90% of coral reefs have now been impacted according to a Summer 2021-2022 survey published by the agency that manages the world's largest coral system, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Authority. Phil Mercer reports from Sydney.
10: For the fourth time in seven years, the authority that administers one of Australia's greatest natural treasures has reported widespread bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. This occurs when the sea is too warm for too long. It forces the coral to expel microscopic symbiotic algae that gives it most of its energy and colour. Reefs can recover from bleaching, but it can take years. If water temperatures don't return to normal, the coral can die. Large parts of the reef were killed off by mass bleaching in 2016 and 17. Officials say it's happening again. They're hoping it won't be as destructive as previous years, but serious threats remain. David Wackenfelt is the chief scientist with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and says reefs globally are under pressure.
6: Often the Great Barrier Reef is used as a poster child for the impacts of climate change on coral reefs, and I completely understand that. But climate change is a global problem. It needs a global solution. And it is all of the world's coral reefs that are under threat.
10: The United Nations is assessing the impact of global warming on the Great Barrier Reef, as well as localised threats, including pollution and overfishing. In Canberra, the government has insisted it's the best-managed reef in the world and that multi-million-dollar programmes are boosting its resilience. Conservationists argue, however that Australia needs far more ambitious plans to curb its carbon emissions. The Australian Marine Conservation Society said Wednesday that during a La Nina event, which is a naturally occurring weather cycle, eastern Australia receives more cloud cover and rain that should have been a welcome reprieve for our reef from warmer ocean temperatures. However, an AMCS spokesperson warned that bleaching was becoming more and more frequent, and that this was not normal. The Great Barrier Reef runs 2,300 kilometres down Australia's northeastern coast and spans an area about the size of Japan. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Hi,
8: I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the potential fall of the Abortion Rights Act Roe v. Wade, as lawmakers and officials in multiple U.S. states signaling they want to pass more restrictions on reproductive rights. This topic and more on Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm
1: Carol Castiel. Next up, we reprise the debate over the pros and cons of the Iran nuclear deal, also known as the JCPOA. Diplomatic efforts are underway to salvage the stalled negotiations aimed at preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. The main obstacle is Tehran's demand that Washington drop the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from its list of foreign terrorist organizations. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America.
2: On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I am Tina in Washington, wishing
7: you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
9: A brutal ISIS terrorist faced justice in April when he was found guilty of participating in the heinous acts that led to the violent kidnapping, torture and deaths of American aid workers and journalists, as well as the deaths of British and Japanese nationals in Syria. A federal jury in Virginia convicted former British citizen El Shafi el Sheikh for his role in a hostage taking scheme that held more than two dozen people captive during the Islamic State's reign of terror between 2012 and 2015. The scheme resulted in the murder of three American men, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, and humanitarian aid worker Peter Kasich, and one woman, aid worker Kayla Muller. The three men were beheaded, and their murders were filmed and used for propaganda videos. Kayla Mueller was forced into sexual slavery and repeatedly raped by Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi before she died under unknown circumstances. In a statement, the U.S. Department of Justice noted that evidence presented during the trial showed that El Sheikh and two other ISIS members, dubbed the Beatles by the hostages because of their British accents, supervised the terrorist organization's jails and detention facilities at which the hostages were held. They were known for engaging in a prolonged pattern of physical and psychological violence against hostages. 35 witnesses testified during the trial, including 12 former hostages who detailed violent and persistent beatings, sexual assaults, waterboarding and forcible exposure to the murder of other hostages. The jury found El Sheikh guilty on all eight counts, including hostage-taking, resulting in death, conspiring to murder Americans outside the United States, and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. El Sheikh faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison and is scheduled to be sentenced in August. After the verdict, Diane Foley mother of slain journalist James Foley praised the American justice system pointing out that el-Sheikh had four attorneys defending him el-Shafi el-Sheikh was treated with a great deal of mercy, she said. Hopefully, we were able to turn this into justice, not revenge. The case also highlights that either in a court of law or on the battlefield, a message for terrorists sent by President Biden earlier this year holds fast. We will come after you and find you.
7: That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.